This episode is brought to you by Roundtable Group, the experts on experts. We've been connecting attorneys with experts for over 25 years. Find out more at roundtablegroup.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Discussions at the Roundtable. I'm your host, Michelle Lux, and my guest today is Steve Haz. He is the principal at Tailored Solutions. Steve, thank you for joining us today, and give us a little bit of background about what it is that you do, and explain to us, you know, that's retail. How does that lead then into expert witness work? So my background is all in primarily large retail to start. I spent about 25 years in senior level roles at Nordstrom and Macy's in a cross-section of merchant and finance roles, um, store operations, vendor negotiations, pretty much everything under the roof that retailers do. I have touched in my career in all different models, stores and online, full price, off price, promotional, all of it. across most product categories. And then about three years ago, I moved into consulting where I worked primarily with small to mid-sized companies to help put structure and discipline in place around finances and forecasting and inventory management that they didn't previously need when they were in true startup mode, but as they now have some size and scale, um, there's some requirements that they need to put in place where I can help them um, scale profitably. So how this puts into expert witness work is there are an unusual number of conflicts and cases regarding either the negotiation, the management, or the operations of some form of the retail ecosystem. So I've done work around licensing disputes. I've done work trying to paint a picture for what normal retail practices are and whether or not what one side or another was doing fell into the category of normal retail practices or very outside of it. Depending on their side of the case, they could make an argument for either. Um, and mine was to bring somewhat of a real world framework that something that might sound outlandish actually is a very common practice. And that um, conversely, something that might sound very common actually would never happen in the retail world. So I've done work for both um, plaintiffs and defendants across a reasonably wide section of topics in the retail space. Everything, like I said, from the manufacturing side to relationships with retailers to financial arrangements, negotiations. Um, interesting cross-section. So wasn't really anything I ever envisioned getting into. I just sort of stumbled into it one day and then realized I liked the work and I liked the variety of it. And I liked a very deep dive into a interesting subject for a short period of time. So it's something I've cultivated and continue to want to do. For you, mm-hmm. was your first case um, where they were just looking for a particular expert and they just mm-hmm. saw that you had that criteria? Mm-hmm. Or- Okay. So- yeah. Yeah. I was connected through some consulting platforms that look for industry experts to mm-hmm. um, plug into people in the investment community who are looking for quick hits on industry experts as they're doing research on things. They developed a legal wing of it. So I was well established on their platform and they had a deep bio and it just happened to match up the first time. And then I realized there's a, you know, several different uh, platforms out there that connect experts with counselors and, you know, to some degree provide matchmaking services. And that's really how I've seen the bulk of my work come in. Well, you know, you mentioned Nordstrom's, you know, you have that experience mm-hmm. with, you know, national and, you know, some stores are international as well. Do you mm-hmm. find that your cases are across the U.S. or have you received cases um, outside the U.S. as well? Um, I've worked on both the the International component is generally related to something with a U.S.-based retailer, so it may have to do with manufacturing that's done overseas, 
It may have to do with a parent company that's working overseas and engaged with a U.S. retailer. So it's on paper, my expertise extends really just to the U.S. market, but to the degree that um, there's work done with foreign companies or with people working on behalf of factories overseas, the what I know and how I can apply it to these definitely extend beyond just the U.S. And then do you have any special tools or like phone apps to organize your time? Um, are you at a point where you have multiple cases going at once and you're trying to stay on top of them? Um, I generally don't ever have more than a couple of cases at a time. And I have been able to do it really just kind of old school on a calendar with um, tracking hours, different ways, depending on how someone wants it done. But uh I would welcome the problem of having so many at a time that I was having trouble keeping tabs on them. That has not been a problem to date, but now I just, I, I'm able to manage my calendar. And the, the beauty of most of this work as I've found it is it's largely self-directed, meaning I've committed X amount of hours a week. Um, so there's not as much the problem of conflicting cases, tripping over one another from a scheduling standpoint. It's just more a matter of me carving out the time to make sure that I'm able to meet the time requirements I've committed to. Right. And then how about, you know, when you enter that first conversation with the attorney, when they're just outlining the case matter, to <laughs> you, how do you prepare for that? Um, like what questions would you ask them in that first interview? My biggest objective in a first interview, other than finding out if there's a fit with my background and experience with what they're looking for, is really to make sure that I'm comfortable with the side that the that I would be representing. Um I have yet to come across one where I wasn't, but I have, I've certainly worked with colleagues who heard the merits of a case and understood what counsel was looking for and, and simply said, that's not a, I don't believe that's a position I, I would like to be part of supporting or defending. So for me, it's a matter of understanding really what are the, what are the high level points of the case? Does it match up with my background? And then essentially, what are you looking for my either witness report or deposition or testimony to support. Um, because as much as I enjoy this, I don't ever want to find myself on the side of something where I'm defending or advocating for something that I think is, you know, counter to what practices are or what I believe in. Do you write a lot of expert witness reports or have you been deposed versus testified? Like what happens the most for you? Um, I would say the most by far, I actually have gotten very, I, I have yet to testify. I've done multiple depositions and even more expert witness reports. Um, what I've found, the reality is that most of these settle before they go to court. Um, I have had a couple that we thought would end up at trial where I've gotten as close as travel arrangements and, you know, witness coaching and all that, um, from counsel, but, um, primarily it is depositions and then, uh, I've done expert reports for every case I've been on, and some have required multiples as they were rebuttals to opposing counsel or anything like that. So um, it's it has been a combination of those two to date. What about you touched on witness coaching? Um, what mm -hmm. what did that look like for you? How did they prepare you for that? Um, it was interesting. It was really more what to expect from opposing counsel, what um, how to interpret what a question really meant how to stay very focused in the guardrails of what I was being asked to provide an expert opinion on, um, the risks of straying beyond the question and trying to look like I know a lot, but the the traps that I could essentially be creating for myself by talking, doing more than simply answering the question that was asked. Did you find that, um, you know, was this in person, a video call that you did with the attorneys or how do they, how do they 
prepare that? It's all been video um, and, you know, the attorneys brought in um, witness coaches and it was more, they were up to speed on the merits of the case, but it was, I would say, 70% um, witness prep that could have been universally applied and 30% that was unique to this case. Um, we spent a few hours on certain topics to touch on questions, how to answer certain questions, topics to stay away from, things like that. Um, it was a lot around demeanor. It was a lot around style. It was a lot around tone, um, a lot around word choice, where to use absolutes, where to stay away from absolutes, um, things like that, that when you hear them make a world of sense, they just don't necessarily play into our day-to-day -day lives. So it was really just sort of rounding out the message. It was more working on the delivery than it was the message itself um, to make sure that it was positioned and, and communicated in the, the manner in which it was most advantageous. Interesting. Yeah. You know, there's definitely something I had another guest on the show not too long ago. We talked about body posture and yeah. um, just the psychology of just yep. how to present yourself to the jurors. It does go sure. a long way. So it's, it's yeah. always good to hear that there is that witness coaching that goes on. Mm -hmm. What about any, any learning moments for you that were like big, like, Oh, ahas or something where you took it away and then you changed how your approach for being an expert witness to really stay focused on the areas on which I was asked to provide an opinion. Um, generally, as an expert, there are numerous related topics that I may be knowledgeable on, but either it's irrelevant to the case or in some ways can actually undermine the side I'm representing by going into too much detail or opening up another line of questioning or another line of discussion. Um, and it just takes a little doing, but it is more, you know, expand as much as wanted on that exact topic, but put some guardrails around how far from, you know, center I'm willing to stray or able to, to who I want to talk to. And the other would be never taking the bait from opposing counsel. Um, you know, their goal often is to throw witnesses off their game in a deposition. And early on, I had a counselor really help me with, here's what you can expect. Here's how he's going to ask a question. Here's what his follow-up is likely going to look like. His goal is to get you to, to be offended or to react badly to that. Because at that point, you've sort of lost your train of thought and your focus. Um, I, I think and I thought, oh, I've, I've been an executive for a lot of years and I had to avoid those things. The questions followed the exact sequence in which he predicted. And I likely would have gone down the exact trap that he was trying to guard me away from. So it's one of those I've always kind of tucked away that the, the opposing counsel is doing their job, but they're not your friend. Um, you know, be careful. Don't, I, I'm not looking to make a friend out of this. I'm looking to share my expert knowledge on a topic and, and keep it confined to that. And no matter how inflammatory or condescending or whatever opposing counsel may be, it's in my interest and the client's interest to stay very even keeled. Yes. Have you ever been in a position where an opposing counsel has then hired you as an expert for their matter? Uh, no, I have not. Yeah, I that might not. happen. <laughs> I can, you, well, you, that would be sort of the ultimate validation that you're you're a good at expressing your opinion and b seem to know what you're talking about. Yes, I would I would welcome that. Yes. What What are some best tips and practices for writing the report? For me, the the overarching goal is a couple of things. The first is obviously to communicate my point of view and my position on the argument. The other is a lot of times these can be very technical in nature. So to be sure to do so in a way that someone who hasn't lived and breathed this for decades on, on end can understand it. So not probably any different than tackling a, you know, an, an essay in college. It's kind of, you know, a framework of 
what do I want to say? How do I want to communicate it? What's the sequence in which the story makes sense? And then how do I step back often enough and make sure that I'm using either anecdotes or staying away from industry jargon or anything that someone who doesn't know this says, oh, I can relate to that, or that doesn't seem fair, or of course that's okay to do. Um, so it's really a matter of trying to, you know, it's no different than than giving testimony where, you know, your goal is not to lose the attention of the jury or to use terms they can't understand or to bore them to death. Um, any and all of those can also be done in an expert witness report. So I think to to balance, how do I communicate effectively and powerfully and also do it in a way that the average bear can understand um, is my approach to it. And then, you know, with as many examples and anecdotes as possible that I find help bring things to life and, and someone can relate to versus this just being a topic that seems so abstract to them that it's hard to ground it in anything they've ever seen or done. Is there any particular case that stands out in your mind as being, you know, a defining moment for you? Yeah, I would say I worked on a case where there was a accusation of financial impropriety against a brand um, that they had um, maneuvered things financially in a way that was not consistent with reporting standards and in no way consistent with industry best practices. And prior to my conversation with counsel initially, I read they provided the complaint and the rebuttal to it. And in my first conversation, they said, well, what do you think of it? And I said, this complaint was written by somebody who has no understanding of how retail works. Everything outlined that they're claiming is some misstep or misdeed is absolutely done by every brand and every retailer every day of the year. And to me, that was sort of one of those ahas of like, wow, it really is easy to get tangled up from a distance when you don't understand the inner workings of this. And it helped me understand my value isn't that I have any tremendously detailed insight that I've gained from, you know, having a higher intellect. It's from having done a job from a lot of years and being able to say, this is how this really works. And let me explain to you why. And let me tell you the financial and relationship and competitive motivations behind that behavior um, and why people do it um, or don't do it. So to me, it was this sort of epiphany that like, I don't have to shine some light on a very obscure fact. My knowledge of the industry in and of itself, having lived and breathed it for so long, really can be of value to people who are trying to assess what actually happened. Yeah. Interesting. Well, what about um, any last stories or insights or anything you'd like to end with about being an expert witness? No, I enjoy the, I really enjoy getting dialed into the case and working with counsel and trying to craft, a, you know, however broad or narrow my role may be, how to make that a powerful part of what they're trying to do, either to prove or to disprove. Um, and have found in most cases that I'm able to add a lot of value really by digging in, trying to understand the details um, and, and listening carefully to counsel and then providing feedback on things that, like I've said before, are out of their wheelhouse, but are second nature to me, where I can really help um, prove or disprove a case. Yes. A lot of value in that, <laughs> for sure. There is, hopefully, yes. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for joining me today. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Discussions at Roundtable. Our show notes are available on our website, roundtablegroup.com. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening apps. 